Sankarshan Joshi trip. First of all, like, thank you so much for doing this. Like, I it's it's been such a long waiting for me to have you on the podcast, but finally we are doing this. So, first of all, I'd like to thank yeah, you for yeah. being here. My pleasure, bro. My pleasure. It's been a while as well. I was also trying to sort out things, but um, it's been just a bit here and there. And yes, so it's yes. Good to catch up <laughs> with you again. So, like, usually right. I do the introduction of the guests, like, even before the episode, like, airs initial part, I do it. But, like, when right. I was about to do your research, I saw, like, your achievements. And then I didn't want to miss out on, like, any of your achievements and progress. So, could you please do the honors for me? Like, could you please introduce yourself for all the people, like, who don't know you? Right. Um. So... I am working as a researcher for a think tank called Observer Research Foundation. So I just started this gig uh, recently and I've been um, working on India's neighborhood, uh, foreign policy and conflicts precisely. So I did my master's in international relations, uh, precisely focusing on India-Pakistan relations and India's neighborhood and also uh, happenings in Kashmir. So that's my uh, core focus for now. And that's what I'll be doing even uh, with the organization that I'm trying to work for. Okay, that's that sounds so fancy. Like for the first time when I heard you on like Mani Shekdal's podcast, Matukate, and when he when he right. did your introduction, I was like, holy spokes, like this sounds so like profound and like, but the conversation did justice to your background too. Like, so like whoever's listening, like you can go check that out too. I'll leave in the description below. Uh, so uh, I know we are running short on time right now. So I'm just like, like, I'll try to keep this conversation crisp. Uh, so like, okay. even before we get into like what's happening in Afghanistan and Taliban, could you please like enlighten us on like, why is it important for countries to have relationship? Like we all are aware of like the Indian politics, right? Like there is a politics on a very large scale like there is politics on a very world uh, level like where it's between the countries so could you like enlighten us about like why is it important to have a relationship with countries and that politics well um, let's let's put it this way it's it's in a way uh, just say that more than countries we live in nation states and uh, nation states are nothing but equivalent to countries that's how we put it in political science but yeah um, and precisely, we live in societies. No one wants to live alone. No one wants to live by themselves. And that's why you probably need to have someone or the other. And, and in a world where you are determined by just say 196, 197 member states, you always have to have some good interaction. You need to have some good conversation with uh, member states because no one, especially in this globalized world, can live as a pariah. Let's say what's happening in North Korea today. Um, what's hap- what happened with Afghanistan in 1996 to 2001. So basically, you can't restrict people, you can't restrict goods from coming in. You need people to interact, you need people to move out, you need people to come in, uh, you need your ideas to go out, you need your goods to come in, your goods to go out. So that's how nation states survive. Even as empires, as kingdoms, this has been happening for uh, ages. Uh, no one, see, uh, if, if human beings cannot be constrained in one area, you need to interact with others. Um, go back to tribes, they interacted with others because no one wants to live in a closed society. No one wants to be um, as a pariah. And that's why precisely you would want a nation state. You want to interact with a fellow uh, nation state or countries, you know, be a hostile, be it friendly, uh, be it neutral. 
be it best friends, however you want to term it. So that's why it's important to you know have some kind of relationship with the others. Yes, and also, yeah. uh, like with whatever is happening with in Afghanistan, right? Mm-hmm. Like I always had my like tentacles up. Like something always like found fishy there. Like even in the past, like whatever has been conflict among countries, like there's been like world wars, and there've been a lot of like wars happening between like a lot of countries, and like America has always like been a center of conflict in some or the other way. Like it either like promoted conflict or in the name of peace. it somehow promoted or like it instead of went for war some of, like in some of the other way america has always been a part so it's like even with afghanistan right like uh, could you also tell like what's happening in afghanistan like i just all we, we can just take a left turn here and we can brief about that before we get into this yeah, yeah sure sure i mean uh, before we start is just one thing uh, you know um, no it's been america for now uh before that it was britain before that it was uh, you know turkish empire uh, the ottoman empire uh, before that there was the romans there you know that has been the part and parcel of the world you know the one who has power will rule the one who has power will try to impose peace no matter how fraud it is uh, and the one who has power who has money will always try to dominate the other beat human beings beat empires beat kingdoms beat nation states uh, what happened with britain it did the same thing uh what happened if soviet russia had been successful after the cold war it would have been the same and it had done the same thing with its neighbors in central asia and um fellow you know central asian countries and soviet countries so that's one thing you need to know um yes today america is in the top of the power which it is declining so probably you blame america for it and probably 10 years or 5 years down the line you will be blaming china for whatever it's doing around the world trying to impose uh its politics trying to impose peace um however fraud it might be again uh, so that's how it works and um so let, let's come back to um, afghanistan um so the, the major part of afghanistan starts from its geography if you notice um afghanistan is landlocked country stuck between iran and pakistan um and in in addition to it what's important is uh, unfortunately afghanistan has always been at the uh, center of empires or kingdoms or um nation states right uh, historically uh, you go back to time when um uh, when when you know this, uh, the tsarist empire of russia was expanding at at one point of time we had the british indian empire in in south asia um so the british used um, afghanistan as a buffer zone uh, to keep soviets out uh, so it's it's ultimate that even soviets wanted to, sorry the tsars wanted to have an influence in um, you know um, in afghanistan and then came the britishers and then uh, came the soviet union uh, which happened which wanted to expand its influence beyond afghanistan and move to south asia but it didn't happen the way it was supposed to be and that's why afghanistan is always called a graveyard of empire so for the past 100 200 years if you notice afghanistan has always been a um, key part of contest and power politics and uh, inclusion of different nation states that it has always been with um so if that precisely answers your question yes and also like afghanistan has a lot of uh like resources in it right like there's a lot of like minerals there's a lot of natural resources which a lot of like which countries could capitalize over so it's been uh, a largest manufacturer of opium right and like for 
uh, like all the neighboring countries have always had the keen interest to like uh, take over afghanistan and maybe capitalize over the opm market there so the current crisis has anything to do with opm uh, or like to capitalize over that like why do you think this uh, this crisis started in the first place right um so more than just saying it's opm uh, there's something called um, you know a resource curse right um, and generally when you have a resource curse that say you are rich in in a way that in in if you put in a common man's perspective you are rich then you have a group of thugs or a group of individuals unprivileged individuals who want to exploit you right who want to take the resources that you have that genuinely happens with societies with nation states is same with afghanistan but the most unfortunate part of afghanistan um is that more than things coming from outside it's from within so more than uh, other countries trying to invade afghanistan for resources most of them have invaded as i said for a buffer zone for political reasons rather than um resources itself because we only discovered more than we the us only discovered the resources in afghanistan that it had 1 trillion dollars worth of resources only in 2010 and early 2000 but this conflict with afghanistan has been happening even before that right um so that's why you need to see uh, the point is afghanistan externally was more of a political especially if coming from different countries uh, but internally uh, yes there was a lot of resource curse happening um you know uh, taliban or any other terrorist organization or even warlords militias everyone wants to have some control over the resources have some control over the uh you know uh, opm uh, because opm is always a good uh, commodity to make profits with. so that has been uh, something within so but if you if you go back to the question where did this all begin this all again starts from the basic conception that you know afghanistan is a buffer state okay its geography is uh, closely located to um, pakistan or, or say russia or central asia iran so that's what complicates today's afghanistan that's what complicated even yesterday's afghanistan um so that's where the whole conflict began and that's where it is precisely uh, you know going on this way. now uh, let's just quickly uh, go back with this uh, whole theory of uh, you know uh, the political perception of afghanistan uh, being a um a domino or being being a sphere of influence for nation states um so back in 1970s as i said um there was this uh, soviet influence uh, piercing in through uh, afghanistan's domestic structure they wanted a new uh, political government which was so communist in its nature to um, establish a communist government within afghanistan which was quite seen very uneasily by the us by pakistan um and also to some extent by iran because they uh, didn't want a you know communist regime within afghanistan they didn't want communism to pass through this close um so what they did rather were they um, and especially afghanistan has been a very conservative society starting from ages um you know the tribes the ethnic rivalries they have been conservative they have been sticking to their islamic identity quite precisely more than any uh, quite keenly more than any other nation state that you would have seen at that point of time so what pakistan and us did rather along with saudi arabia they started funding um, afghans locals uh, and they started training them in madrasas you know radicalizing them so that they could fight against the soviet union and could throw them out and then afghanistan could itself be secured um, from communism so this was the whole plan 
Uh, it happened to be that it worked out quite efficiently. The Soviets were thrown out. Um, by 1989, Afghanistan was uh, not having any Soviet presence, just like it doesn't have any US presence right now. But it did have uh, you know, a problem of local government being led by uh, Soviets again, or, or by the communi communist party of Afghanistan. And apparently uh, what happened was it was a weak government which couldn't have sustained without uh, Soviet support. So then we see a civil war breaking out and then we see Pakistan upping its cards and saying, okay, this is a civil war and we are going to make the best out of it. And then they introduce, more than introduce, they push a faction called Taliban. And right from there, the whole story begins. 1992 to 1996, uh, Afghanistan is in a whole civil war by different warlords, different kind of um, military factions and then comes uh, the Taliban and it, uh, it, it, it is quite efficient by 1996 it establishes its, its own government and it's there till 2001 um, but Taliban uh, if, if you notice it's Islamist in its nature but also uh, tribal in its nature it sticks very strong to its ethnic identity of uh, being Pashtun um, so they, uh, there was a, there's a tradition in Pashtu, uh, Pashtun, uh, you know, ethnic, ethnics or tribes that if someone asks you for, uh, you know, what do you say, um, for an amnesty or someone asks you to stay within the country as a guest, you're obliged to give them, you know, that residual place, no matter how bad the person is. So the same happened with Al-Qaeda, uh, who resided, uh, especially, uh, Bin Laden, who planned to stay in. I mean, there was always a lot of economics and politics that went behind, but at the end of the day, when the US said after 9-11 that we want, um, you know, Bin Laden out of uh, Afghanistan, Taliban just said no, because that's our culture. We respect our culture. We want people, uh, we, we, you know, respect our traditions of looking after our guests and Bin Laden is our guest and we won't let him in. So um, that began this phase where the US entered 2001. Um, the war went on. They defeated Al Qaeda quite easily, but Al Qaeda. But there's always a porous zone between Taliban, uh, sorry, between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So obviously, most of the leaders from Al Qaeda and uh, Taliban were bombed, and most of them left to Pakistan. They took a safe sanctuary in Pakistan for quite a long time, and then they waged a guerrilla kind of warfare. Uh, starting from 2007 to 8, uh, back they started controlling this place. So obviously, it was quite difficult for the US in first case to defeat, uh, you know, a regime which is whose geography is so difficult, whose people are like always so indulged in tactical warfare, uh, guerrilla moments. And second, it was again difficult for the West or say for the democratic country to establish itself into a society that has been traditionally very conservative, very inclined towards their own religion, towards their tribal values. So the US gets itself stuck for 20 years, trying to build a nation, which apparently doesn't happen. And whatever happens, as we saw, just you know went out in 20 days. So that's where the story began. And apparently that's where the story is heading right now. So it's not the end. We'll still see um, a lot of resistance coming in the coming, uh, you know, coming days. So let's see what's going to happen with Afghanistan in, in the coming days as well. Yes. And also, like you said, like tw 20 years back is when America entered Afghanistan, right? With the whole purpose of defeating Bin Laden. And they stayed, uh, like their trained military uh, troops, they stayed in Afghanistan for over 20 years. Like, even though like they kept building like new narratives to stay there, they found new reasons to continue to stay there. And uh, 
So, like, why did they stay for 20 years there? Because the information has been not very much public and, like, not a lot of people know about, like, why American troops stayed in Afghanistan for, like, 20 years. See, again, uh, multiple, uh, you know, factors behind it. One, um, because they didn't want China or, or any other country, especially Russia, to bounce back into these territories. I mean, it was not just an... Um, how do you say it, it was not just an attack or just uh, you know uh, an invasion but also ideologically or uh, you know establish any kind of influence within this region especially in Afghanistan one um, and second because you know if, if a country has to survive it has to survive on a narrative that someone is your enemy right someone is there and that's how you unite your country today if india is united against one country you know which which country it is so we have a common enemy to survive uh, if pakistan has to survive it has one or two enemies as such to survive if bangladesh has to survive it has always used although not very uh you know aggressively but it always has this na- kind of nationalism where it says i'm threatened by india i'm scared of india similar thing nepal uh, Sri Lanka, a lot of other small countries do it with their big neighbors. A lot of countries do it with other countries. So every nation has a kind of threat that they stick on to. Right? What happened after the Cold War? Um, you know that that was how that, that was how it ended. Like 1991, the US had no new enemies to make, and apparently, yeah, it it was a tough thing. Like you know, you kill 3,000 innocent people of yours, and no public is gonna sit and you know take it very lightly. They're gonna say they let her kill. What are you gonna do about it? So that's where it began. I mean, uh, and also U.S. has this deep obsession, you know, um, that that's the second thing. And the third thing you would always say is the U.S. has quite a deep obsession of showing its power, right? It's not just U.S., but every nation state, every kingdom has done it. So the U.S. was also foolish enough to believe that it can, you know, penetrate its ideology within uh, this unknown terrain, unknown country and establish a democratic system. It has this habit of holding on to its values, ironically, to democracy and to human rights, uh, which it did. So that's where, um, you know, you can say multiple reasons were behind this U.S. Um, you know, standing band. And also the fourth thing might be with, uh, you know, a bit of war profits that come from, that's what you call blood money. Like you send your troops uh, and also you send, uh, you know, the contractors from your country, you basically provide them with employment and then, your war lobbying machine is behind you, especially the U.S. industries, which makes a lot of weapons, which makes a lot of, uh, you know, uh, bomb equipment, ammunition. So they have something to make profits on. And that's where Afghanistan comes ahead or Iraq comes ahead. And again, as the Cold War world order broke down, the new world order was defined by who are civilized, who are uncivilized, uh, who are terrorists, who are civilians. And the only way nation states can survive is by killing uh, the terrorists or the ones who threaten our globalized world or, you know, however you want to put it. So, yeah, multiple reasons behind it. And precisely as expected, it was brought to fail. A lot of people told then, a lot of people told after that, but that's how countries are. So, like, uh, when the America decided to take back, right? Like, when they decided to step back and, like, bring back all the troops of uh, uh, like bring all the power back so that's when the taliban's power escalated right like that's when they came up so uh like i'm wondering is this a coincidence or did they know that this is gonna happen like when america decided that they wanted to bring this back is this a cause and effect like did taliban waited until the american troops left 
so that they can seize power or did america leave so that the taliban would come like like i'm just so confused with this no um i mean you you can put a few things i mean as it comes and go uh but no i don't think the us um withdrawal itself led to the taliban's resurgence taliban's resurgence happened way back in 2008 or 9 uh when they were they they immediately up as an as and when us invaded against al qaeda and taliban uh the taliban were kicked out within days of their government and then they established a new uh democratic so called democratic government uh within afghanistan so the taliban basically withdrew into shadows of pakistan the northwest frontiers of pakistan and that's where they built their whole sanctuaries of terrorism again and again and by 2007 2008 they were back by 2011 2012 um taliban has completely reformed itself into uh, you know guerrilla organization uh, ieds rocket launchers bombings uh, guerrilla attacks ambushes quite a lot of things happened uh, and and um, the areas controlled by the government drastically either they fell completely to taliban or Uh, rather than actually they started falling periodically to taliban or they were being competed by taliban so the us quite knew it and uh, there's this um, leak by washington uh, post i presume uh, is, i think that is called kabul papers so there was something uh, there was a wild belief not even believe there was always evidence that uh, the us has always been failing in its nation building machine uh, in, in its nation building mission in, in afghanistan but the us wasn't ready to you know digest it one yeah because they didn't want the china or russia to come in two they didn't want their ego to be down if if they let go tomorrow every nation state will question their power third they always wanted an enemy to survive on war lobby as i said it took so long for the us to realize but when but again when when and how your domestic public opinion changes when they start questioning you like what actually are you doing in afghanistan what what's your purpose of going to afghanistan that's when your leaders also start you know wagging their tails toward the public opinion says and precisely this debate had been happening since 2014 2015 barack obama of the, was of the opinion that you know uh, by 2009 and 10 you know uh, the us troops increased from 30 40000 to 90000 in in afghanistan why was this because he said we are going to completely destroy the enemy and then we are going to withdraw by 2014 2013 it didn't happen um, and and similarly nato uh, forces whether they also said the same thing by 2014 nato operations were wrapped up but the terrorism problem still prevailed so i don't think um, the us uh, you know the us didn't have that capacity to survive there for long i mean even if they did they would have still seen themselves failing uh, day in and day out so that's why i think it, it was better or they decided it was better to leave uh, afghanistan as and when it goes again second thing you need to also look at is the shifting priorities at that point of time central asia uh, for us holding central asia holding on to iran um, threatening russia uh, was something important holding middle east was something important but now the world system has changed now threat has changed we have moved uh, you know uh, us has moved from looking at russia as a threat to china as a threat right the us has moved from making the middle east as a uh, as a chess battleground to making indo pacific region as the battleground so we see this shift happening from one place to the other place and that's why precisely uh, you could also argue that the us had no you know real interest in staying in this region as and when china started you know growing into a big power yes and also like uh, let me just give you the reason why i've been like so uh 
like interested in america being the the center of this conflict because like america is the largest like weapon manufacturer right like it makes and it distributes a lot of weapons and it has a history of like giving out weapons to countries right and it has a record of giving the weapons to the wrong hands so it's like uh, mm. so it it somehow ends up like the the weapons which were meant for their allies it always ends up in the hands of enemies and they end up using that and overpowering the allied nations of uh, america right so like this 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 didn't, this didn't happen like once or twice like it keeps happening in series and this this repeats so like so this makes me wonder if this is what they are looking for like has this been their plan in the first place to like have allied countries and then like empower the enemies to like take over the allies like this is a very like weird conspiracy but so you say uh, the us had been supplying its uh, weapons to its allies to empower them uh in the name of peace i yes like lending power or like selling that like it 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 sold weapon to iraq also right like like before right. they became their uh like enemies in in a sense but like yeah this is what i am thinking <laughs> okay so I, i'll put it this way okay um there is a very common belief in international relations uh, the discipline that there are no friends uh there are nothing called permanent friends in international relations there's nothing called permanent friends in foreign policy there's only something called national interests and the national interest might be anything ensuring it's your, your survival ensuring your uh, neighbors respect you and ens- ensuring that you are the world power anything as such right the taliban armed mujahideen taliban armed anti soviet forces in the pakistan and the, and the same uh, mujahideen evolved into taliban and today they hold american arms right similar thing okay uh, iraq iraq was like a good friend and all of a sudden it was selling during the iraq iran war it was selling n number of weapons to both the sides and all of a sudden when you see saddam hussein has already turned against you and now that you know you it it, it attacked basically one of your friends or it attacked one of the nation states uh, everything changed and why iraq attacked that's national interest that was in interests of iraq might be for good might be for bad again there is no morals in international politics again as far as the first myth goes um so that's how it happens i mean they sold a lot of arms to libya they for heaven's sake they even sell a lot of arms to pakistan right and then pakistan sends these arms to the terrorist organization and evidently um america steps in again they fund pakistan again to kill these terrorists and they kill these terrorists and evidently they get these arms back it, it's a lot of uh to and fro and a lot of things happen and especially but when it comes to snatching weapons or you know um your rivals taking control of your weapons it's been a basic tactic of warfare if you see someone who is having a better weapon than you you will you will steal it i mean more than stealing it you once you defeat the person you would want to take that weapon because you don't want someone else to attack you right you want to defend yourself better and that's how it has worked um where did the afghans in 1800s late 1800s get their guns the british empire brought them the, they stole it from the british and then they threatened the british away by the third anglo british war that's how it happens your enemies always tend to take your weapons and as i said again there is nothing permanent right as, as a friend there's always a permanent interest for afghanistan for taliban or for pakistan permanent interest has been 
uh, entrenching a deep state within Afghanistan, threatening India, uh, having a control over Kashmir, and that's its permanent interest forever. So its friends have systematically changed from US to China and now moving closer towards Russia and again now holding back to Taliban. So it keeps on changing, okay? But again, there's nothing that's permanent. I, that arm that goes there, the arm will come back here. This arm goes there. So it's a lot of to and fro. A lot of things happen and a lot of things happen in secret as well. So it's like... Uh... They make money selling weapons, right? Like they they make money selling arms. US. And the more the conflict, the more weapons the countries would need, right? So in a way that like like America, like US, like it profits over war, right? Like it's very literal because like that's the product, and that product will be in demand in the time of crisis, like a war, right? See again, um, I wouldn't say. Yes to that question. Yes, um, the lobby plays quite a good role. The lobby plays a positive role. But that doesn't mean that the US would want to employ something that definitely goes against its national interest. So it's it's in a way saying that, um, how would I put it in, in, in a very common way? Just say that the US, right. So just imagine the gun laws within the US itself, right? So if the U.S. says, okay, since I can sell more weapons to my own people, they can kill themselves. They wouldn't do it because they still have some kind of restrictions, although very debatable, but they all very lenient um, restrictions as well. But still, they try to restrict it in some way or the other because they say this is against our nat- national interest for our own people to kill our own people. It's the same way. Uh, Iraq and Iran fought in 1980. Um, um they said, we don't have anything to do. Iraq is neutral to us. Iran is neutral to us. So let them fight and whatever happens, let it happen uh, for time being and let it go with the flow. Um, the same thing, probably uh, it happened on the other side with China or or with um, India at this point of time. Uh, the US would probably supply more weapons to India than it could ever do to China. Or say, uh, Israel would supply more weapons to India than to Pakistan because that's where your national, your national interests are with India, not its arc rival. Right. So, yes, there's a weapon lobby, there's a conflict economy, there's a war economy that grows within, but uh, no, not in contradictory to your national interests. There might be some people, some agents um, like your industries or like your secret agencies or uh, your own army, your own uh, police uh, forces who want to trade the weapons for better money, for better uh, side income, black money, etc., etc. But no, the state in itself would sell weapons, but yeah, always keeping in mind their national interests. And like China is the next threat to power to like US, right? Like it has its roots in a lot of uh, countries' economy and like it is like it is a threat to its power. And uh, so like foreseeing, what do you think would the few like the future would look like? And uh, like before you answer in the like the world perspective, could you like give closure on the Afghanistan scene right now? Like what would the next course of action be like? Like what's the future for Afghanistan right now? Okay. Um, the future of Afghanistan looks quite bleak. Um, so at this point of time, uh, we had promises coming in from the West saying that, oh, we need an inclusive government from the Taliban. And everyone seems to change their opinion all of a sudden. Uh, the Iran, Iranian government especially made a you know a dialogue saying that okay we, we you know we didn't expect uh, Taliban to attack Panjshir in this way right uh, Iran made a new turn on it 
the Iranian president is going on going to Tajikistan on his first visit. The Pakistan seems to be the only happy country, at least for now, with Taliban. China is being very uh, calculative as well. Russia is being very calculative as well. But again, Russia is being very cautious at the same point of time. They did meet. Uh, they 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 did meet India uh, on the basis of having a negotiation over, over uh, Taliban and and the US have made some concerning comments. UK has made some concerning comments. So it's obvious again uh, things are looking a bit bleak for this moment because all those promises, the new Taliban, Taliban 2.0, uh, the liberal Taliban, whatever crap these people came up with, it's obviously not working. And Panjshir has still stood. There's a lot of you know. Uh, disputed evidences coming that one says uh, the allies have been defeated and Taliban has taken complete control and some others says no, no, resistance is still fighting. Um, so it's it's now that you see another game unfolding because uh, now that people are coming to realize or nation states are at least starting to realize that uh, the Taliban is not something that they wanted it to be. So they will try funding um, other groups, other organizations. Uh, and see how it goes. I mean, it, it's going to take a bit of one month, two months, three months. You don't know, but it's it's still going to take a while. But whenever it takes a while, it's going to take a wild turn. And uh, and also, the current government is very again Pashtun oriented in Taliban, which is non-inclusive of other minorities. So that's again a concern for several neighboring countries. So, what was the incentive for Pakistan to create Taliban, like this terrorist organization? So, I actually had a question for you regarding, like, why do this terrorist organization like form in the first place? But then, like, uh, I like this is what my assumption is. It's because, like, it's like government and like let's say Pakistan. Pakistan is secretly funding Taliban for like in in some of the other way so that the pakistan would benefit out of it right so no um i get the question it's, it's not secret funding it's open funding everyone knows <laughs> it. the isi chief was there a few days ago um no uh but as far as it goes see again there are two things one uh the pashtun tribes that live in pakistan pashtun tribes that live in afghanistan uh, had some kind of pashtun nationalism over pakistani or afghani nationals at some point or the other and uh, there was a wild belief, um, not belief, there was a wild movement in 1970s uh, where the, um, you know, the Pashtun tribes of Afghanistan actually wanted to create a Pashtunistan where uh, Khyber Pakhtunwa province of Pakistan would be a part of uh, broader Afghanistan. That was the whole aim. Uh, apparently, the movement died out probably because of Pakistan. Uh, so what happened in the meanwhile, Pakistan said, we are going to train a force of Pashtuns uh, who are going to be loyal to Pakistan than uh, to this so-called uh, democratic government within the Afghanistan. So that's where the first incentive began that they don't want anyone to raise the Pashtunistan issue. Uh, the second thing is obviously uh, at that point of time, it was to avoid communist Russia to come in, uh, come into the South Asian frontier. So that was one thing that Pakistan did at that point of time. Now it has always transformed to, um, you know, just say in this way that one is a Pashtunistan issue and the second one is is also about power politics. And now Pakistan has gained a whole lot of relevance, uh, which we don't have otherwise. A lot of countries are now talking to Pakistan because they realize that's the only way to go through um, Taliban. Uh, third thing, they get a sanctuary to push their Lashkar-e-Taiba, Jaish-e-Mohammed, whatever crap they have created for so long uh, into Afghan frontiers, Afghan territories. Um, fourth thing, um, they can question India's, uh, you know, 
in, in India has been funding Northern Alliance for quite a while since 1996 to 2001. That was the uh, group of alliances that took against Taliban within that uh, civil war time. So, and Pakistan had been sponsoring Taliban. So this is a kind of uh, power war that broke out. And also um, uh, Afghanistan is quite, uh, uh, sorry, Pakistan is quite anxious of losing one more of its provinces. That's the Khyber Pakhtunwa, like it lost Bangladesh. Uh, long back. So it, it has been scared uh, ever since that it's going to lose another territory. It's not going to survive as a nation. So that's why it wants to keep a firm control um, over Afghanistan and also all the drug money, the weapons that come in. It's, it's, you, you also create a kind of leverage point with these terrorist organizations. See, now the US is talking to you, the UK is talking to you. Even India is trying to talk, India is trying to maintain uh, decorum on LOC, doesn't want to you know, have any more skirmishes. That's how you create a leverage point and they have done it quite efficiently in a bad way. So are Taliban independent or like answerable and dependent on Pakistan right now? I would put it, um, it's it's a mix of things because Taliban is not a homogeneous entity as a lot of people make it to be. Uh, quite a few people, uh, there is this... Um, there is this military wing that is quite loyal to Pakistan. There is this political wing uh, that's called the Qatari uh, or Doha um, uh, Taliban, which is not that, lo- which is loyal to Pakistan, but not to the extent that Pakistan want them to be. So they have some kind of autonomy. Um, again, you have Haqqani network, uh, which is basically a product of Pakistan that is part and parcel of Taliban. So they do listen to Pakistan. And then you have the Tehrike Taliban Pakistan, which is again part of Paki, uh, Taliban, which claims it to be a close ally of Taliban, but it doesn't want to listen to Pakistan. And TTP or Tehrike Taliban has been one of the major challenges that Pakistan has ever faced since. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's quite a mixed up picture, but again, um, the ISI chief was there. Uh, so he has made sure that the Doha... Uh, batch or the Doha group of Taliban has not gone that enough of uh, you know control over the current government. So that's how they have in, they have put others in charge or the interim president, uh, prime minister of the uh, you know this thing has been pushed from Pakistani side. Hmm. So has India uh, uh, India has to do anything uh, with the current situation? Like what is India's role right now in the global politics with in the current situation, considering like Taliban or Afghanistan? Do we have a role? We do have a role in Afghanistan, a big one. We spent like what uh, billions of dollars uh, leveraging our soft power, building infrastructure in Afghanistan since 2001 after the Taliban government did fall. And Afghanistan is our neighbor. Um, if uh, if if you go through it legally, that's the Pakistan-occupied Kashmir is the immediate neighbor of Afghanistan and that's how we have been separated. But either way, we still have that uh, leverage. It's still our neighbor. Um, so we do have a major role to play. And obviously, you don't want your uh, terrorist organization, say the terrorist organization that are threatening you to be safe and uh, harbored in your neighboring country itself. So that's again a threat to you. So you don't want that to happen. You don't want China, Pakistan, Afghanistan to create a nexus. Uh, so a lot of things are stake, uh, stake for India. And for now, India is doing one thing, just wait and watch, wait and watch what's happening. Is trying to uh, talk to multiple people, although a bit late, but yeah, it's still trying to engage with uh, these people. But unfortunately, it has still given up on its uh, Northern Alliance for now. Probably if the Northern Alliance emerges or, you know, comes back as a phoenix, then probably things might change in, in coming uh, days. But for India, it's, it's just wait and watch. And now it's going to, it's it's meeting a lot of stakeholders. 
apparently india was um, isolated for a long time from what's happening in afghanistan through the western powers russia uh, us and now it, they, everyone try, wants to have a leverage with india and india is trying to do vice versa so it's it's quite complicated to say but i hope uh, it works out uh, and and it's all a wait and watch game for india do we have an As ally well. right now in this current situation like is there any country that would like support india or anyway or are we independent with this whole like scene right now see um, it it differs again india's um, traditionally been a non aligned country um so non aligned as in not really depending on anyone it has always stayed away from alliances it has always stayed away from military alliances and it makes its independent foreign policy for itself um and that's why it takes its pride in regional power that's why it takes its pride in being the south asian leader whatever you may call it um and that's how india is going to make its future foreign policy as well yeah probably uh, you might want to coordinate with usa because now you dislike the taliban but at the same point of time you didn't coordinate with the usa when it was withdrawing from the uh, afghanistan because you knew it would be a security threat to you again it all depends on national interest for now it's moving closer towards the west because it sees that um, they are also a bit skeptical of the taliban than russia or china has ever been um, so yeah it's it's how it's going to unfold in the coming months too and it's trying to have some kind of role which i presume it deserves because it's its neighborhood and we can never ignore a neighborhood for any reason for a really long period of time we didn't have like india we didn't have any conflict with any other country right like which which like threatened our like existence and like livelihood so like right. like we are playing very safe right now right with respect to like we are avoiding as much conflicts as possible so do we have any threat uh, in near future or like any time quite a few um china obviously one um the emergence of taliban has researched will research a lot of terrorist networks al qaeda indian subcontinent will try to reactivate itself um which if it happens a lot of um uh, you know threat from bangladesh from sri lanka uh, and from maldives might turn out to be um then we always have pakistan um so that's another threat um so we have a couple of threats and no nation state is absolutely safe unless uh, you know you live in a very polarized kind of or isolated kind of world so you do have your priorities you do have your risks um and also kashmir uh, which has always been on a boiling point uh, so that's another risk which india will try to uh, you know look forward uh, or try to deter and then we have northeast which is again boiling as usual um so quite a lot of things are happening in, in the security aspects as well and china is trying to surround india on multiple fronts uh, through the string of pearls operation so you know the tactic of string of pearls so that's that's how uh, we are confronted in multiple ways but you know no nation state is absolutely safe and especially with regional powers like india you can never say you are completely safe and when you have failed states and failed governments like pakistan and afghanistan next door it's always a risky uh, place to relax and sit down and say that we have no threats to you know conquest or conquer against yes uh, it's been such a like empowering conversation like thank you for enlightening us and uh, I know like you're running on a very like t- tight schedule right now and I feel like there is a lot to talk with you so I hope 
I like like you'd be back again and we'll have like we can extend our call and uh, thank you so much for being here man. No, thank you. Thank you for inviting me and it's always a pleasure talking to you. Yes, I am looking forward to have you back again. So once again, thank Definitely. you so much. Definitely. Sure. Thank you. See ya. This podcast is now recorded on video as well as audio. You can find the audio version on Spotify, Jio Savan and Gana. If you want to look at me If you want to look at my beautiful face, then you can come to YouTube and you can just look at me. So, if you want to ask me a question or be a part of this podcast, then make sure you follow me at Asankarshan Joshi Trip on Instagram. So, I keep putting like polls where you can answer my question or you can ask me a question. So, you get to be a part of this podcast. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much once again. Hope you guys have fun. See you soon. A Sankarshan Joshi trip.